Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is David M. Boer. David is a comic book writer for Powerless, Alien Bounty Hunter, and IDW's upcoming Canto, co-created by David, along with Drew Zucker. In addition to writing comics, David is a screenwriter and a lawyer living in Los Angeles. David, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. My first question, the audience knows by now, is where you are in the world. I know you're in LA. How's it going out there? I know there were some earthquakes, there's some craziness going on. How are you feeling? Are you okay? Yeah, we're moving and shaking out here. So yeah, just two days ago, we had the earthquake. And um, I'm actually up in the mountains just outside of Los Angeles this weekend. And it was kind of fun because we were all sitting around the dining room table and ended up getting underneath it as it was going on. So we definitely had the moment of who this could actually be kind of serious, but, but no damage. We're totally fine. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And now you're here. I read your bio. Tell us um, when you run into someone or meet someone for the first time, maybe at a Comic-Con or something to that effect. How do you introduce yourself? What are the things that you say to kind of summarize who you are? Well, you know, at this point in my life, my career, I sort of say that I'm a lawyer by day and a writer by night. Yeah, so I just sort of, that's my way in. And um, yeah, write comics, write movies, written a couple of screenplays. And um, it's funny, I, I talk about that. And it's the lawyer thing that a lot of people get perked up about. Is there uh, any correlation between the work you do as a lawyer and writing? Is there any correlation there? Are there things that go through your mind when you're doing one that's similar to the other? You know, it's the, I think it's the technical part of writing because you have to be so technically precise and so detail-oriented as a writing as a lawyer. I really, with scripts and um, really anything I write creatively, you can ask, you know, editors that I work with, and there's very few typos and, you know, grammatical errors and that sort of thing. It's just something I really end up focusing on. And that's because my training has been in um, technical legal writing for the most part. So I think that sort of is what comes through the most. So you are, as far as current projects that you're working on right now, I know you're working on Canto. Are there other things that you're working on besides that? Or because I definitely want to dive into Canto and talk about it, talk about the process. Sure. So comics-wise, Canto has really been my focus for the last, honestly, at least a year, because it's a fully creator-owned book that we are sort of launching on our own, along with IDW, but still it's a heavy lift. So that's almost been entirely, my focus is entirely on that. And then on the screenwriting side, I've been, uh, I sold a feature last year, so we've been doing rewrites on on that. And so juggling all of that and some pitches and things has been along with my day job, has been uh, quite the uh, balancing act, but it's all fun. So as far as Canto, I know, was that released around, that was June 26th, correct? 
Yeah, so it's been, I think we're coming up to two weeks now. Would you mind if I read a little bit about it? Normally, I don't do this, but I realize that when there's a writer with a new project out, it's probably helpful to give context into what the story is. Are you okay with me doing my my worst, so to speak, on what this comic book is about? No, totally. I'd love to hear you. (laughs) So Canto is an otherworldly odyssey inspired by Dante's Inferno and the Wizard of Oz. It was created by you as well as artist Drew Zucker. It features the talents of colorist Vittorio Stone and letterer Darren Bennett. It's an all-ages comic book miniseries that explores a strange and fantastic world in search of the greatest prize of all, a heart. Uh, enslaved for generations, Canto's people once had hearts, now they have clocks. When slavers damage a little tin girl's clock beyond repair, Canto must brave the darkest corners of his hostile world to bring back her heart. Can he overcome the dangers that await to save the one he loves? Are you cool with us taking this comic book, which is the project you're working on now, and kind of using this to talk a little bit about process? Absolutely. I would love that. Awesome. The first question I have, I mentioned in there that it's inspired by Dante's Inferno and The Wizard of Oz. Tell us about the inception of this idea. I know this is a co-created comic. So how did this all come about? Did you, you know guys come up with this together and was it kind of commissioned and how did you get it? Sure. Um, you know, I've been excited about this project. I just was looking back at my records, um, correspondence with Drew. And I think the very first concept art for Canto came through on June 24th of 2017. So it was almost two years to the day of when it was released. And, uh, the way it came about in my experience has been in comics generally is that the projects that I've enjoyed the most have been the ones that are sort of I've paired up with an artist right at the inception. And so we sort of work together to develop visually the world, the tone of it, the story, the feel, the characters, all that. So fully collaborative effort from day one. And I think that really shows in the final finished product. It really feels like it's this cohesive work versus I do my part as the writer, the artist does his or her part is with the inks and then the colors come in and the letters and that sort of thing. So um, the way Canto came about was I came across Drew's arts a few years ago and I was impressed with it. And I'd reached out to him to do a short and a comics anthology. And it turns out he wasn't available, but that may have been the best, you know, blessing for both of us because after he became available, he reached out to me and said, I have this sketch of this character. And he sent over a rough sketch of what eventually became Kanto. And he had some thoughts on a story and that sort of thing. But I'll have to tell you, within about four seconds of seeing this concept art, I said, well, we're definitely going to make a story <laughs> about this character. That's how drawn to this little tin man I was. So we started talking and he sort of gave me his thoughts and it was a, a, a little bit darker of a story and a little bit more adult of a story and i really wanted to do an all ages store a book and i wanted to do um especially with this little tin character i thought this is something that to be totally candid with you i, I just had the thought in my head i can see a six-year-old kid dressing up as canto running around a convention <laughs> like san diego comic-con which i think is you know, the mark of a really distinctive, wonderful, visually compelling character. So we started talking about this story and eventually we developed it 
his story was a little bit inspired by Dante's Inferno. And I am a huge, huge Wizard of Oz fan. When I was like 12 years old, I grew up in a small town on the shore of Lake Erie in Ohio. And my local library, which I spent all my time at when I was young, had this book sale. And on this table, I found a 1901 copy of Wizard of Oz, the original book. And I just flipped through it and I was just completely captivated by this as, you know, as a 12-year-old kid. And so I bought it and I still have it on my shelf and it's stamped with my local library from when I was little. And I just, it's a prized possession. So we sort of took Dante's Inferno, we took inspiration from Wizard of Oz, and we started creating this story about this little tin character. And as we went through it, and I started to, we started doing the outline, I would outline it and get Drew's feedback and then start doing the scripts. We really set out to make a story of a character who is going out on this adventure to do something not for himself, but for somebody else. So he could have easily... In the story, when you describe it, he goes out and he tries to you know, find the heart for this tin girl. And we could have easily made a story where he, he was the one with his clock being damaged. So he has to go out there and race against time to find his own heart. But I think there's something so pure and compelling about a character who risks everything just to save somebody else at his own, you know, at his own cost, his own peril. And... The first issue came out two weeks ago, like like I said, and I think that's what is connecting with people is that it's just this unabashed hope that he can help somebody else. And um, it's been just a crazy, crazy last couple of weeks to um, get the reader's feedback on it and to see it sort of take on its own life out there. Yeah, so that's, I guess, how it all began and then you know cut fast forward two years because that's how long comics take to make and here we are just about behind the scenes finishing up the last issue of six issues that's going to come out in november so we've got a six basically six month run of this story sort of episodes if you re- if your listeners are um more tv geared we like to <laughs> we can call them episodes as opposed to issues as far as that time you spent working together with the artist and developing the tone, so to speak, how long did that period last before you actually sat down to write out the script? Was that a month? Was that six months? And is that a normal uh, process for a writer and an artist to start working on like the world itself before you start diving into the outline and the script and that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah, it is. So, so the way creator owns, unless you're a huge, huge name, the way creator owns comics work for the most part is you come up with a story, you find your artist, an artist that you connect with, and hopefully a colorist and letterer. Just as an aside, Vittorio and Darren have been just spectacular parts of our team. And a lot of times colorists and letterers don't get the kind of credit that they deserve, but this is a full four-person team on Canto, and it certainly wouldn't be anywhere close to what it is without everybody's, you know, bringing their um, top, top level work to it. So just a shout out to them. But the way these the creator-owned comics work is um, you'll pair up with your creative team, and then you'll come up with, you write out the synopsis, the pitch. Usually maybe it's the first issue script, so the full first issue, and then about five or six pages, sample pages from the script to tell 
an editor that you're pitching to to show them exactly how this is going to feel, how it's going to look. So with Canto, what we did was probably start a couple months. We probably developed the um, the world, the synopsis, the story, and then we started. And then I, I wrote some script pages, and Drew started working on the art. So we put together about six script pages that ended up fully drawn, colored, lettered pages that ended up becoming the first six pages in issue one. But um, that was like our sample proof of concept type thing that we would send out to editors. And then one of the unique things we did with this pitch, um, which I think really helped us move it along, was we actually created this pitch document. So it's extra information that's not going to be in the final comic. But when you look at it, you immediately get the feel of what it's going to feel like when it's out on the shelf. So I think it was about 10 pages. It's a sample cover. And then you you flip to the next page and it's like parchment pages. So it feels like an old time storybook or a fairy tale book, just kind of the feel we wanted to go for. And with some sort of black and white ink drawings in the background. And then we set up, here's, the, you know, just, just typed it out. Here's the world. Here's the market that we think we're going for. Here's the creative team behind this. Here's a synopsis of where we see the story going. Meanwhile, peppered in are all these little sample concept artwork, a little bit of Canto. There's some, you know, monsters in his world he's encountering. Then the finished pages. And then Drew came up with something which I think was a brilliant, brilliant idea. And I think it really sold it. So you have these six pages that tell the story. And then the last page is, here's a little tease of what's coming down the road. And of course, at that point, we hadn't drawn it all yet, but it's just three panels. One has like, you know, one big monster. It has, the second one has Kanto riding something. And then the third one has him coming up against, you know, some, some other creature in the world. And it's just like little teases of what, Right. It's like a sizzle reel. What's coming? And so I think that package, sending it to editors, my goal has always been as a comics creator to create a pitch where the only way that an editor can say no to it is for their reasons, not not our reasons. So make it visually compelling, make the story compelling so that the editor has to pass because there's something similar in their catalog or they don't have space for it, not because the art isn't great or the, the story isn't compelling, that sort of thing. And how long did that sample, how long did that process take to get to point A to having that sample being ready to pitch it to editors? I think it's about three to four months. So okay. I think we started in earnest in the fall of 2017. And then I think the pitch was ready early 2018. And I think we actually started sending it out in March of 2018. And in the meantime, so we might get into this, but... Um, one of the things that I did separately from just pitching Kanto was, you know, go to convention. I've been going to conventions, San Diego Comic-Con, for, I want to say it's 12 years now, maybe 11 years now, and just meet editors and hang out and, you know, just kind of be a person that they want to spend time with. So when I started having images of Kanto, I would have it on my phone and I'd say, oh, yeah, this is what I'm up to. And I just show these little sample images. And so by the time we were ready to send it out to editors, editors already sort of had had a little taste of what it was that we were doing. So it wasn't just a 
I describe it as throwing it into the abyss. We weren't just throwing it into the abyss and hoping for the best. We actually had these personal connections that I could say, oh, this is ready to go. Would you be interested in taking a look? And of course, these editors who I'd become friendly with should say, of course, send it over. We'll take a look. So I was actually just going to ask about the next process for just sending to the editors, and you briefly touched upon that. Obviously, for you, you've worked in comics before. You mentioned going to Comic-Cons and kind of uh, networking, meeting with editors. What about for writers? And I'll probably ask you this two more times over the next <laughs> course of the uh, episode, but specifically regarding meeting editors, how would you suggest, let's say, uh, a new writer meet an editor without it being strange? Yeah, I mean, you can't. So a couple of things. There's definitely ways to do this. I think my sort of mantra is just be the kind of person that other people want to spend time with. And so you can't come on strong with a printed out pitch in your hand and just go straight up to the folks at the IDW booth or Image or Dark Horse and just say, I have this pitch. You know, if you have the pitch, it might take a long time to lay that groundwork. But if you, one of my favorite comics of all time is Lock and Key. So if you love Lock and Key or, um, you know, Walking Dead or, um, Oblivion song at, at Image, uh, go talk to the editors and sort of geek out with them about comics and just not, you know, don't even mention that you can mention your writer, but just really connect on a personal level. Go to the mixers at the bars and, you know, just, just become the kind of person that they like being around and just lay that groundwork so you're not coming on strong right out of the gate of, hey, can you help me? I have this pitch. I want to have it here. And that's what I've really tried to do for you know years leading up to this point is just network and be the kind of person that people want to hang out with and want to see succeed. So I guess that's my best advice is, especially at like San Diego Comic-Con, the editors are so overworked. There's no space mentally to take in the information that you want them to take in. So I think the very best you can do is just meet them and introduce yourself you know, let them know that you're a writer and you really love comics and, you know, you love Lock and Key, you love what something else they publish and start laying that groundwork. So when you send them that email a week later after Comic-Con and say, Hi, I'm working on this project, I'd love for you to take a look if you have time, they're inclined to say yes, rather than who is this person. Love that. Eventually, you ended up working with IDW. What's the homework they assign you from that point? Is it now, okay, go out and make that first issue? How do you kind of compartmentalize it? What are the next steps? So we, Drew and I believed in this story so much that we, so what we ended up sending to IDW was the pitch I was just describing. Plus, I think we had inks finished, so black and white art finished for the full first issue by the time we had sent everything to IDW. And so we'd sent it all over and I had the first script written. But it took a while to hear back from them. And in the meantime, we just kept pushing forward because we, we believed in this project. So we knew there's such a huge market for like Kickstarter comics and to publish our own stuff. So if it didn't land at home, we were going to make this comic anyway. So once they said yes, and we were done with sort of the, um, the business side of things, we had already been moving forward. And so IDW and our editor just was like, keep moving forward. And I sent all the materials we had. I think by that point, I had all six scripts done for all six issues. They looked it over and were like, 
keep going. So the process has been stressful at times, but we really were ahead of the game. So by the time the first issue came out two weeks ago, we had, as of tomorrow, we're going to have four issues completely done. So we're really, we're trying to work ahead because one of the best pieces of advice I got when I started working in comics was once that first issue goes out in the world, the train has left the station. It's not stopping for anything. So it can either be a fire drill as the process goes along, or you can work ahead and hope it's just still a fire drill, but just a little bit, a two alarm instead of four alarm fire. As far as the actual comic script, we find these very interesting and mysterious. Do you work in the Marvel method or the other method? And do you have a preference? And talk to us a little about the actual script process. So I have to say, if if I send scripts over to Drew in the Marvel method, he would um, lose his mind. (laughs) He'd send them right back and he'd just say, no, I say that. And um, I'm teasing. We we have such a uh, close working relationship, Drew and I, that it's really been just an absolute pleasure to work together on this. I work, uh, you know, I was looking into this a little bit, and um, it's called the DC method. So, or some people call it the DC method, where you actually script the pages and the panels. And that's for sure what I do. But that said, there are definitely moments when I do slip into that method where just, especially action sequences, I trust Drew implicitly on how to lay out action sequences. There is an issue that's coming that the first six pages are all um, double-page spreads. So what that means for your listeners who don't necessarily you know, work in this lingo, it's just when you open the book and you lay it down flat, the two pages, you know, the pages span that spread. And it's, they're, they're all action sequences. And I believe the script that I sent to Drew was, this is where... Canto fights with this thing. <laughs> and that's basically how I laid it out. But I trust his I trust him on that, those aspects of the action. And then there's other times where I have a very specific idea in mind for camera angles and how the movement from one panel to the next should appear on the page. So I will definitely write those in detail. Now they go over to Drew, and Drew will tell me without hesitation, yeah, this isn't going to work, but how about this? So it becomes a collaborative process. But it's very much like screenwriting and TV writing. There are moments in a script, you know, it's a blueprint, but if there are moments where you know you need a smash cut because that's going to be the joke, the joke is going to be cutting off the line of dialogue before it's fully finished because that's what's funny, then I'll write that in the script, but otherwise I'll let the director and the director of um, photography and you know everybody else who comes in, becomes involved later on down the process to bring their perspective and their expertise to it. So I guess the answer is it's mostly the DC scripted page and panel method with peppering in the Marvel method to let Drew sort of work his magic. And how much back and forth is there between you on the writing side and Drew, you know, working on the art? How many back and forth and what does that look like? And how much time does that take to really get it to a point where it's kind of there? So I'll do the scripts. I'll write the scripts and I'll send them over. And if he has thoughts and notes on them, he'll definitely get back to me. A lot of times we do alterations and changes at the art stage. So there's about three steps. Um, in Drew's process. So he'll get the script, 
We'll go back and forth if we need any changes or anything. Then he'll do thumbnails. So he'll send me over sketches, just very rough, like even rougher than storyboards and TV and film, just sketching out. Here's how the panel layouts, I think the panel layout should be in this page. Here's the positioning of everybody in the shot and panel. And then we'll, we'll talk. We'll get on the phone and we'll talk through all of those. And once we work out what we want to see on the page, he'll do pencils. And pencils are more finished, polished versions of the thumbnails. And then we'll look at that and we'll realize maybe an angle isn't working or we need to pull out farther and we need a different layout, that sort of thing. And then once we settle on those, he goes to inks, which is the finished product that will then be colored and lettered. So it's, I mean, it's a back and forth process. And as each step of the way, and it's kind of unusual, our, our working relationship, because he'll send me screenshots of panels that he's working on. And, you know, 95% of the time, I just write back, that's fantastic or amazing or, you know, just great. And every once in a while, I'll go back and say, well, you know, maybe we should change the camera to this or we should make this figure on the panel bigger or something like that. So it's a lot of back and forth, but I think the end product is about the best thing that we can produce by being so closely involved in that process together. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. The Flickering Myth podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. 
<laughs> you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have good podcasts and podcasts like these. You sound like a kidnapping victim. <laughs> you can find us also on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network at flickeringmyth.com along with other great shows. Check us out and check them out too. Thank you. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. And at what point does the editor get involved? I imagine the editor is involved in seeing the the process you guys are going back and forth. Well, so, um, you know, editors run the spectrum. You have editors who are definitely involved in that process from the, from the outset and continue to be involved at every step of the way. Fortunately for us, IDW has kind of um, let us run with this story. So um, our editor is David Marriott, who has been fantastic this whole process. But he's really sort of let us do what we want. So he will see the um, art at the end. And even it's my experience with other editors, a lot of times by the time we get to the art stage, it's really at the scripting stage that's um, a lot of the involvement with the editors. And by the time the art comes in, you know, hopefully you're working with an artist who just knocks it out of the park, you know, and they have creative choices and we could make different choices, but that's just our taste and not, you know, not necessarily an improvement. So I've seen editors and I've done it myself when I've, um, I've sort of done editors for a couple of series pitches and that sort of thing. And I just want to let the creative team sort of do what they do, unless there's something that's really problematic. And so David and um, the whole team at IDW has really let us sort of run with this and create the vision of the story that we want to create. So um, I think we really have appreciated that. At the end of the process, they certainly get involved if there needs to be any changes or anything. But for the most part, it's um, Drew and I collaborating together to make the best comic we can possibly make. When do you know when that first issue is ready to go? And what's it look like as far as finishing the others? At what point are you supposed to have everything delivered how soon is that before, you know, the release and the rollout and all that kind of thing? Yeah, so that's like, that's definitely, um, to uh, have a Wizard of Oz reference, that's definitely uh, peeking behind the curtain. <laughs> uh, well, the issues are never, ever, ever finished in my point of view. I, I still look at them out in print, and I still think there's things, if we had more time, we could have done something differently or that sort of thing. But like I said, the train's out of the station, so um, we're just going to keep going with it. So our finished issues need to be um, in seven weeks prior to them being on the shelves. And that seven weeks accounts for any... No, that's like the, that's like the deadline. I'm trying to remember now. That's um, our internal drop-dead deadline that it has to go to the printer. So seven weeks gives us gives IDW time to send it to the printer, get it back, have it sent to the distributor, who then will send it to the shops to be on the shelves on the Wednesday that it's slated to come out. So we actually get them in, I think, nine or ten weeks prior to being on the shelf because 
in case there's editorial and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that's why we wanted to work ahead with four issues because we knew we're working up right to the very last second on these last two issues to make those deadlines. And having that happen through this whole process of it also being released is just, it's a very um, stressful, it's a very stressful process, but you just try to have fun with it. Once uh, everything's out, and obviously now you're waiting for the rollouts of the other issues, what's next for you? Obviously, you're, you're waiting and you're getting the feedback from readers. What's going through your mind? Are you kind of now looking for another gig? Are you talking to IDW? Like, where is your head at now that you're at the point where you're kind of tasting the fruits of your labors, so to speak? Well, it's still abject terror and crippling fear of failure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's been a complete whirlwind for the last couple of weeks. We've been working really, really hard to promote Canto up till this point. And, you know, right now, completing the process, the creative process in Canto has been our singular focus. You know, looking down the road, I think the next step for me is to um, do some, write some licensed characters. So there's uh, creator-owned, which is we create our own stories and have them published. And then the license is everything from like Transformers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I mean, things like Care Bears and G.I. Joe and all these other Star Wars existing properties. It's sort of a brass ring for comics writers to be able to write any of these licensed characters. So I would love that to be my next step. And I'm sort of putting my feelers out there to see what opportunities there are. And then I'm really pushing into the TV and film side. So that's sort of been my personal focus. Drew, I think, is um, singularly focused on the sprint to the end for Canto. And both him and I are very, very hopeful and optimistic that we'll get to continue with Canto's story and future story arcs. So once that decision is made, then um, hopefully we'll be starting that creative process to get that rolling. My last question uh, before we move on to what we call a series of seemingly random questions, which aren't always that random, but <laughs> how did you get to the point of even wanting to become a comic book writer? We talked about, obviously, how you met Drew and, and that point on, but tell us about the, the early years and how things led up to this. Did you want to be a writer? Well, I've, I've kind of wanted to write and been writing since, I guess, college, but really started in earnest about 12 years ago. And it was about the same time that I started going to San Diego Comic-Con. And I, you know, to be fully transparent about it, I was never a comics reader when I was growing up. I was always, I always read Stephen King and, you know, just devouring prose, like novels and fiction, and especially like horror fiction and YA fiction, that sort of thing. And I only came into comics and I started going to Comic-Con as sort of a pop culture geek. And I read... Early on, I read uh, some independent books that I really loved. And then I read Lock and Key, which is a comic published by IDW that's now, it's going to be a, um, they just wrapped filming, I saw, uh, on the TV series for Netflix. And it's just this unbelievably cool story that I never knew could be told in a comics format. So I guess I kind of came in like a lot of people thinking it was a lot of superheroes and, you know, the big two. And that really opened my eyes, not only to, 
what comics can be, but what stories could be generally. And I think that's what struck me. It was just felt so different and so new. And so after I read that, I, I just sort of jumped into comics and I still read as much as I can. And I've been reading over the last decade. And then I had a story that I pitched that eventually became powerless with a very independent, wonderful independent publisher that I'd been meeting a couple of, um, at a few conventions over the years as I've been going. And I pitched them that idea and they really loved it. And at the same time, they were starting a new comics imprint that eventually became this indie publisher called Vault Comics, V-A-U-L-T. And that's sort of how I got my start and sort of flying by the seat of my pants when I first started. And now I feel like I'm a little bit more, I have a little bit better grasp on the process, although I still, every single day, I learn something new and different and how to do things better. But I guess that's how I started. And you know, I can't, at this point, I can't ever look back. And it just gives me so much, um, it's so fulfilling to not only be able to write, but then to see a connection, you know, people connecting with something that I've created. It's, it's, uh, I just keep describing it as crazy. It's just crazy to see this all happen. So I'm just so happy about it. Are you ready for the next phase of the episode, which is the seemingly random questions? Here's comes that crippling fear of failure. Again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's do it. Let's do it. First question, we actually haven't asked this on the podcast yet, but you mentioned Star Wars very briefly. And this comic book, Canto, is about a journey. It's based on some pretty epic journeys. Have you looked into and have you incorporated the hero's journey concept from Joseph Campbell, which obviously was a big influential part of George Lucas's 1977 Star Wars? Certainly. That's a, that's a great question. And, you know, of course, I'm familiar with it, but I don't know if I necessarily um, consciously channeled it. I think it's something that for a lot of writers, it just sort of gets folded into your DNA when you're creating stories. So I would say yes, um, in the sense that I didn't you know, have it next to me when I was, I was crafting it, but the beats are there. And I wanted to make the choices um, that we wanted to make for the story that were both interesting and serves Kanto as a character in the story itself, but also um, were surprising. So I think if, uh, you know, following a template like the hero's journey sometimes feels very familiar to an audience. So I'm hoping that there are some moments that Drew and I really flipped on their head to give surprises to the audience where they're expecting this is going to be the dark night of the soul or, you know, Kanto finds a mentor, mentor or something to have some surprises in there that weren't necessarily expected based on everyone's familiarity with those beats from the hero's journey. Next question. Comfort foods. Some writers have been known to enjoy a snack or two when they're trying to combat writer's block. Do you ever encounter that? What do you snack on um, when you're taking a break? I, you know, writer's block to me is, um, I, I don't experience it because my writer's block always comes from the... Um, I keep mentioning this and it must be like psychological or something, but it's like fear of failing. And I know that I'm stopping myself because I'm afraid that what I'm going to put down on the page isn't going to be good. And recognizing that, just have to put it down on the page and make it better. But with that said, it's lightly salted Lay's potato chips. And if there's a bag open next to me, I have to be very careful because even if it's family sized, there's no chance that it stays there. I will just eat every chip in the bag. We will mail you a bag of potato chips from the writer experience. Oh my gosh. Um, 
Or we'll just give you one at a Comic Con. That might be slightly easier. Oh um, my gosh! If you, I, you walk up to the table. And have a <laughs> Don't tell us that. We'll actually do that. So the next question you mentioned fear. I saw on Twitter recently, and this is one that I saw reacting amongst the writing community. But someone was wondering how do you get around the fear that comes with sitting down for the first time and moving past the fact that that first draft is going to be really rough and having the willpower to kind of just move past it and be okay with the fact that it's not perfect. I think you just have to, you just have to convince yourself to do it, to get it down on the page. The best experiences that I've had, I've paired up with um, friends, producer friends, writer friends who I trust from a story perspective. And if I'm not pushing myself to make the drafts better, I will find somebody to work with who will themselves push me to write better and to be better, to improve the story and that sort of thing. So I think it helps me personally to have that external source that I trust implicitly to say, this isn't working. You know, you, this, this can be better. Not necessarily pushing me, like you can be better. It's more like, here's the best version of this story. You know, let's work together to get there. And I think having that external voice helps me improve my own writing because, you know, everything I put on the page is like, this is the best thing I've ever written in, you know, my life. And of course it's not, but that's where we work from as writers. We just fall so in love with what we do that you need somebody to say, okay, come, come back down, (laughs) come back down to earth and let's make this the best version of this story that we can. If you could suggest a question that we ask one of our next guests, could you suggest a question for one of our upcoming guests? Yeah. Um, so I would ask if you could take a year off from everything, family life, everything, and just have a year to write one story, what would that story be and why would you want to write it? All right. Now you have to answer that question. Oh, God. <laughs> that's, the, that's step two. And I thank you. See, that's that external <laughs> note. That's just like, elevating this. I always thought, I I started out writing um, novels, uh, nothing that got published, and it was all like dumpster fires of stories, but I say that, but, you know, it was nothing I would want to to, uh, see the light of day. But um, I think I would take a year off and go to New Orleans, which is my favorite city in all of the U.S., and just for a year, write a novel and just not worry about what it is, what the reception is going to be, where it's going to be published, any of that. Just go and write a story that just has no outside influences and it's just the story that I want to write because it's in me and I want to, and I want it to be out there. Love it. Next question. If you could take any writer living or dead to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant and why? So I would take Stephen King to, I mean, I don't know which restaurant would he, he would be into, but his choice, but circa 1974, and a right around May, June, July of 74, because Carrie was published, it was his first book, it was published in April of 1974, and I would want to ask him where he sees himself in oh, five wow. years. That's crazy. Because I guess what I've read about it is Carrie came out of the gate and the print run was way too low. It just caught fire. 
And so I would love to talk to him as a young writer who's had his first success after struggling and asking him, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And what's your plan to get there? And, you know, asking him that question now versus asking him that question when he was, you know, 29 years old or 30 years old, whenever he published Carrie, it would be fascinating to hear what he had to say. Or even add, tell him when you're sitting there and say, what if I told you that you were going to, you were going to be right. um, one of the most celebrated authors of all time and worth hundreds of millions of dollars in 2019? How would he react to The next question, if you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to those aspiring, maybe comic book writers, TV writers, whoever's listening, what would you say to them? I think I mentioned it earlier, but um, my one piece of advice to anybody is, you know, it can be a challenge sometimes, but just be the kind of person that other people want to spend time with. And whether or not you're a great writer, a good writer, an okay writer on your way up, trying to improve your craft, if you are the kind of person that other people like, they will help you get to where you want to be. Because nobody can do this on their own. I mean, there's, I guess, the one in a million person who can just write that book in isolation and have it go out there and just become a superstar. But most of us are just, you know, trying to be out there and find the people we want to work with and just try to get that little bit, you know, move that little next step forward. And my experience has been, if you're the kind of person that other people want to see succeed, then um, it's just that much easier to get that next baby step forward. Well, you said be somebody that people will like. We like you, David, and we enjoyed spending time with you. Before we wrap up, did you want to plug, obviously, Canto, if you want to shout that out. I know that it came out June 26th. Tell us about the upcoming comics that are coming out, and then also what we can expect on the horizon for you, whether it's you know this year or in five years. What can we expect from you? Well, in five years, I expect nothing short of hundreds of millions of dollars (laughs) and worldwide celebration. Well, you were on the Writer Experience podcast, so that will likely happen. I mean, I'm telling you, it's a step (laughs) forward. Um, So, Canto, the second issue comes out on July 24th, which is a week, which is the week after San Diego Comic Con. I'm going to be down there at uh, San Diego Comic Con with Drew. We have some signings set up. I believe we have a, uh, well, we have a, uh, convention exclusive issue one cover of Kanto that is in fact an homage to a billion dollar sci-fi franchise about wars and stars, but I'm not going to put my finger on it. (laughs) Uh, But we have a signing on Friday at Comic-Con from 3 to 4 p.m. at the IDW booth. And then um, on Sunday from 2 to 3 p.m. at the IDW booth. Issue two of Kanto comes out on September 24th. And five years from now, I hope we're on issue uh, 50 of Kanto and the fifth story arc. So I'm putting that out in the universe. The last question requires a drum roll. Harry, could you please hand over the envelope? All right, we've got the envelope. I'm opening it. <laughs> last question is, did you have fun today? I had a blast. So thank you so much, you guys, for having me on. It's been a fantastic experience. As did we. Super excited to hear about you, your work. Canto, very excited about that. Everyone who's listening, please check that out. And thank you, David, again, for your insights and your time. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.